Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I recently had a moderately romantic meal at the Pizzeria Bella Notte, true story, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm an easily distracted henchman, trying not to get sidetracked playing exotic bird bingo as we take a dangerous trek through the jungle. Thankfully, I'm joined by a guy who not only knows the terrain inside out and back to front, but knows the best way to traverse it is together. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing? I am good. I thought you were setting me up to be Yzma there, but I guess <laughs> I am Pasha? Yeah, I was like, he's the heart and soul of the film. He's the guy who brings everybody together. He's the only character in this film who isn't caught up in their own stuff. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And I'm not, I don't think, scary beyond all reason. No, I've never seen you be scary beyond all reason in in our decade of friendship. We should establish a few things up top in this episode. It is disgustingly hot. It is a hot, balmy September evening in London. I have my window open because if I close my window while we record this episode, it's going to be like that bit in Babylon where they're trying to shoot the scene for the first time using the mic on the stage and the guy in the camera booth is getting hotter and hotter as they're trying to get this take right. That is going to be me if we if I don't keep this window open. Really relatable reference there. <laughs> Look, if you've not seen Babylon, I I am the Babylon hive. I love Babylon. It's so great. You should go and see it. Sam, have you got your window open tonight? I have the window open, so we might catch some cars. We might catch some drunk students having fights that's mainly okay. the noise that we get outside of our place yeah so yeah if you hear a little bit more noise on this episode than normal that is why this is our survival method we have to keep <laughs> to keep the windows open tonight i am very tired as well because not only is it extremely hot but ever since we recorded our dinosaur episode sam a certain song has been playing on a loop in my head all the time even right now underneath this i'm like reading my script i'm talking to you i'm keeping on track with the episode underneath it all Every little leg is every little leg, every little leg. The dinosaur song factory. I feel like I live at the dinosaur song factory. The amount that that song lives in my head at the moment. I'm so sorry to all the listeners if you too have been stuck in a hell of my creation, Sam's creation, G 
J.R. Taylor, Tavor, whatever the made-up name of the guy who wrote that song is. I am really interested if people have been listening to Dinosaur Song Factory, and we've already had some messages from people who have. What are your favourites? Have you listened to the whole album? Because we picked out the main ones. We picked out Every Little Egg. We picked out Big Rock. Every Little Egg, that's like the obvious, like, really catchy hit. Big Rock, I think that's like the thinking man's Dinosaur (laughs) Song Factory song. It's funny in a slightly more subtle way. (laughs) I think Big Rock is a really good song. Yeah. The thing is, I listen to Big Rock and I crack up thinking about you enjoying that song to the level that you do. So if you don't know what we're talking about, if you didn't listen to our dinosaur episode, go back and listen to that. This is talking about the the weird made-up soundtrack for for Dinosaur, an official Disney product, but it's a weird made-up soundtrack for that movie. And as promised on that episode, Sam was telling me about it in Lasting Legacy. And then he was like, tomorrow you're coming around and we're going to listen to that. And I have a photo. It's not a very exciting photo, but I have a photo of you holding court with me and Lizzie (laughs) and a bunch of other people at your house sitting around and you waxing lyrical and playing as songs from Dinosaur Song Factory. It was American Psycho. It's the American Psycho scene with Huey Lewis, except it's me (laughs) talking about the Dinosaur Song Factory. Uh, If anyone has a favourite song from that album that isn't Big Rock or Every Little Egg or Dino Beat, let me know. I mean, there's only five more songs on the album, but like, if if you have like a cult favourite Dinosaur Song Factory tune, I'd really be interested to know what that is. Yeah, so much has happened since our last recording, which wasn't actually that long ago time-wise, but in the intervening time, not only have I become hooked on Every Little Egg, or Break an Egg, I think it's called. In my head, it's just Every Little Egg. It's called Break an Egg. It's one of those songs where that it should be Break an Egg brackets Every, every Little, little egg, egg, because that's what everyone's going to call it. So not only is that stuck in my head forever and ever, but in the intervening time, we had our Disneyland trip. We went to Disneyland Paris, and I don't know about you... I had the best time. I had an incredible weekend. It was so, so much fun. Yep, great time. I think we spent what might be considered a very long time (laughs) in Disneyland (laughs) Paris. I was listening to some podcasts afterwards. I especially was listening to uh, one of my favourite podcasts, Podcast The Ride. Uh, They've done a few episodes about Disneyland Paris, and they did an episode... I think last year, around the same time we had Griffin Newman on our podcast, when he was promoting Disenchanted, he was on Podcast The Ride as well, talking about his recent trip to Disneyland Paris. So I listened to those podcasts after we went, and they were very emphatic that, like, a day is enough to do all of Disneyland Paris. And (laughs) these are, like, people who live in LA who probably go to the Anaheim Park quite a lot, so they've seen all of the stuff that's the same at both parks. But it did make me think, man, we spent basically three entire days there. In one instance, we were there from open until closing. Yeah, you will hear this because we did record quite a lot of stuff out there, which I haven't done anything with that yet. I'm really excited to put it together. Don't quite know when that's going to be released. It'll be probably in the first half of the Wilderness Years season in this era. So you will hear stuff that we recorded while wandering around and just chatting to each other about the parks. And we're going to record some other stuff now that we're back. Don't quite know when that's coming out. But the middle day of our trip, Sam and I were there from 8.30 in the morning until 11pm at night from the beginning of early access magic hour, having stayed at a Disneyland Paris hotel until the park closed. 30,000 steps that day. 
loads of rides ticked off the list it was uh, it was the best time i am so excited to go back through all of that audio and to turn it into something for the listeners and for me to remember that lovely trip and the fun time we had not only that but as we record this we are days away from our shrek live show by the time you hear this that will have happened we are sold out basically we've managed to release just a small handful of extra tickets today but we are sold out and that is incredible thank you so much if you bought a ticket if you came along we really hope you will have enjoyed the show (laughs) and i can't wait to do that this weekend but for now we have to get into a film that is integral to the law of disneyversity sam loves a bit of law and I don't know if Disneyversity would exist in the way that it does without The Emperor's New Groove, because we've spoken a little bit in the past across this podcast of how this all came to be, and that it was partly because you and I just used to talk about this stuff, or mainly I used to ask you about it. Like, in my line of work as a film journalist, I'd sometimes say to you, oh, I'm seeing the new Jungle Book this week. Of course, I watched it as a kid, but, like, what's the interesting stuff about the Jungle Book? Like, what's what's remarkable about that one when... When did it come out? What's that part of the Disney story? And you used to talk to me about that, and I really relished those conversations. Then things took a little bit of a step up when... I'm really sorry, I can't remember exactly where I read this. It might have been on a website like Polygon. Somebody did a ranking of all the straight-to-DVD Disney sequels which I started reading this list, immediately sent it to Sam, like, I need your opinion on this. We need to talk about this. This was before we'd started watching any of these films together. This was before the podcast existed. And I instantly latched onto the fact that The Emperor's New Groove had a straight-to-DVD sequel just called Kronk's New Groove. I was like, who is Kronk? Because you've never seen Emperor's New Groove before. No, only in a small capacity. You don't know who Kronk is. Didn't know who Kronk was. Just the inherent hilarity of a film titled Kronk's New Groove. I was like, I have to know more about this. And so the next time I saw you, you were living in Newcastle. I was living in London at the time, so we'd see each other every couple of months. The next time I saw you... We did a double bill of The Emperor's New Groove back-to-back with Kronk's New Groove on DVD because Disney Plus wasn't out yet. So we raided your DVDs. You ordered a copy, I think, of Kronk's New Groove just so we could watch it. You've missed a step there because it wasn't the next time that we saw each other because the next time we saw each other, I ordered a copy while I was on the train on the way to London to see you, I think this is like, maybe it was like the day after we'd had this conversation. Right. I ordered a copy of Kronk's New Groove to be delivered to your house <laughs> so that we could watch it that weekend in London. Right. And it did not come. It didn't arrive in time. It didn't arrive in time. So then when we were on the train going home, it became a bit of a game. That was the day it was going to be delivered. And me and my mates who'd been down and, and Lydia, we were like watching my phone, the progress of the Amazon delivery <laughs> of Kronk's New Groove. And the extra element of peril was that you guys had to go somewhere soon. You guys weren't going to be in. So this wouldn't make it through the letterbox. There was some whoopee cushions in the box as well. It wasn't just... <laughs> this was... I had a hell of a weekend planned and none of it came to pass. But it was a box with... Kronk's New Groove, the DVD, and a bag of whoopee cushions. <laughs> so if it was just a DVD, it would have come through the letterbox. But yeah. it was more than that. And the main problem was, as a bit of a joke, <laughs> as a bit of a joke, I addressed 
the package to Kronk N. Groove. Yeah, you didn't like, put my name in. You didn't say it's for Ben Travis. It was for Kronk N. Groove. Middle initial N. So the peril is, if you're not in and this arrives, you're going to get a little red slip from the Royal Mail through the door <laughs> saying, Kronk N. Groove, come to the post office and pick it up with your ID which you wouldn't be able to do because your ID wouldn't say Kronk and Groove, so this box of a DVD and some whoopee cushions would just languish in, like, the, the, the Royal Mail depot for God knows how long. But we'll have to put this out because Lizzie filmed you receiving the package she when did. it arrived, and we've got an amazing video of you, like, coming in the door with your Kronk package in hand. <laughs> so you ordered me, effectively, a copy of Kronk's New Groove, and then I brought it up to Newcastle and we watched Emperor's New yes. Groove and Kronk's New Groove back to back one mammoth session and yeah, I kind of feel like if that hadn't have happened, this podcast might not exist in the way it did so, should we do it? Should we get into the Emperor's New Groove and a little bit of Kronk's New Groove as well? Of course, yeah, absolutely Yeah, <laughs> that is enough from us we're all set down, the register is complete and it's time for class to begin this time, we're getting a lesson in llama-shaped humility, courtesy of 2000's The Emperor's New Groove. Okay then, tee us up, Sam. For anybody who hasn't seen this film, and I, let's skip ahead a bit. This film is so good, and it's so much fun, and it's 72 minutes, so if you're listening to this and you haven't watched The Emperor's New Groove, go and, go and watch it before you listen to this. It is such a brief, fun watch. But if you aren't going to watch it for this, or if you've seen it and you don't have time to revisit it, Sam, get people up to speed. What is the plot of The Emperor's New Groove? The selfish and egotistical Emperor Kuzco is fixated on building himself a new summer resort, even if it means demolishing the home of the kindly peasant Pasha. After being transformed into a llama by his evil advisor, Yzma, Kuzco must team up with Pasha to make it home and return to normal, pursued by Yzma and, of course, her henchman, Kronk. 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 Kronk! Yes. So, there is a lot to get into before we start discussing the film, and we'll try not to dwell too long on it, but there's a lot in the background of this movie, because I myself don't know the ins and outs, but this was a really famously troubled production. This film rattled around for a long time before it emerged in the form that we see it now. So, big question, Sam. What happened? What was happening behind the scenes that meant The Emperor's New Groove went through such development hell? Lots was happening behind the scenes, and this isn't the first film that we've covered in the in the Wilderness Years era, but like kind of in a very different way to Dinosaur, this obviously means a big break with what we think of of Disney, especially what we think of as the Disney Renaissance. And it's significant with The Emperor's New Groove because this was almost what you might call a Disney Renaissance movie. Not only did it almost come out earlier, so it would have come out in the 1990s with the rest of those movies, but... It was almost made in the same style as Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Mulan, all those films. It was going to be a big, epic musical, and the story of how it went from that to The Emperor's New Groove is an interesting one, and it tells you a lot about what was going on at the Disney studio at that time. And the reason why we know so much about this troubled production primarily is because it was filmed in its entirety, like the production of this movie, in extreme detail, by Trudy Styler. Do you know who Trudy Styler is? 
No, great name though. Trudy Styler is Sting's wife. Right. Okay. Because I guess something that I feel like I'm treading on your toes and you're about to set this up. There was going to be a full-on Sting soundtrack. Sting was going to do the music for this in the same way that Phil Collins did the music for Tarzan, right? Yeah, and Elton John did the music for The Lion King. And all we get in the film itself is a song over the end credits. A Sting song makes its way into the end credits of the film, but throughout the actual movie, there are no musical numbers apart from one at the beginning with Tom Jones. Again, we'll get to that. But generally, this is not a musical. And so there is a behind-the-scenes documentary about this film from the perspective of Trudy Styler, wife of Sting, whose husband wrote a load of rejected songs for this movie? Correct. So it was basically part of Sting's contract that his wife, who was a filmmaker, could make the making of documentary of this film, which at the time they probably thought it was just going to be another classic like Disney puff piece making of documentary that you could put on like Saturday afternoon TV to hype up the film. All the Disney movies from the Renaissance have these. But instead, what she's put together, which Disney never officially released because... It doesn't paint a very good picture of, of <laughs> Disney's executives in particular. Is a really extraordinary film. It's called The Sweatbox, and you can find it. It's on the Internet Archive. And it's this completely unique document of Disney's process. It's so much more intimate and raw than all of the making ofs that they usually put out for these films. I haven't seen the, the Frozen 2 documentary series, because oh, I'm just so saving that good. till we'll cover Frozen 2, but yeah. I know that's meant to be really good and gets across a lot of the trouble that they encounter on the way. So maybe yeah. this is a bit like that, but to this day, Disney have never officially released this. Yeah, that Frozen 2 documentary, we'll talk about it down the line, but that, to me, is a really fascinating document of how they make these films, and relatively unvarnished of just like a bunch of stuff wasn't ready and they're racing to get it finished but it is a disney documentary officially there are points where they're like this is really bad please turn off the cameras and then we'll turn it on them back on when we feel a little bit more comfortable with what's going on whereas i can imagine the sweatbox does not have those moments and just shows everything unvarnished i need to check that out so before we get to the sting of it all though i guess we should start with the film's original director, a guy called Roger Allers. And we have mentioned his name before. Ben's given me a little... Yeah, I recognise that name. He directed The Lion King. He co-directed The Lion King. And that was obviously a massive success. What's he going to do next? He's basically got the run of the place. He's got his choice of Disney's slate of projects, and whatever he does, he's given the freedom to develop it in exactly the way he wants. So he was asked to do Disney's next big epic musical and he went with a film about the Incas that was basically all they had it's going to be about the Incas it's going to be about Incan culture it's going to be about Incan mythology uh, obviously the Incas the indigenous people of Peru and it was going to be called Kingdom of the Sun not of course the Emperor's New Groove I mean instantly you get a sense tonally of what the film they initially set out to make was versus what we get like the film The Emperor's New Groove could not fit more closely the title The Emperor's New Groove, but Kingdom of the Sun, if that was the title of the film that we got, that would feel kind of incongruous. So were they going for something, yeah, more epic, more in that Lion King lineage? Yeah, it, it was very much in the Lion King lineage. Development started in late 1994, not long after the release of The Lion King. So that was really what they were trying to imitate, that film's success. And obviously what ended up happening was... 
outside of the studio at least, a lot of other movies that were also more or less in the vein of The Lion King came out from Disney and over time kind of diluted the effectiveness of that formula and people's desire to see those kinds of movies. But The Emperor's New Groove was in development since The Lion King came out, so for a long time that was what they were aiming for, The Lion King style. And eventually, after a few kind of story meetings revealed that this movie felt a little bit dry, a little bit too dramatic, and a little bit too... Not dark, I don't think, but not funny. They brought in a guy called Mark Dindle, who was a Disney animator in the past, but had most recently directed the Warner Brothers movie Cats Don't Dance. Have you heard of or seen Cats Don't Dance? That truly does not ring a bell. I have never heard of that film. I mean, it's really good. It's okay. a really good early 90s Warner Brothers film. It's like old Hollywood. It's kind of singing in the rain esque in, in terms of its setting, but with cats. With cats? Yeah, that sounds like a Disney project. That sounds like when they're spinning the big wheel of it's X <laughs> story with this animal, with this classic novel as its backing. But it's a manic film. It's much more in the vein of like the Looney Tunes, which is obviously, as we'll get to it, a reference point for Emperor's New Groove as well. So Mark Dindle became the co-director in order to like lighten the tone, bring in more gags and stuff. And meanwhile, Roger Allers approached Sting to write the music before they really even knew what the story was going to be. So he wrote six whole songs for this movie based more or less on vibes, just like vague suggestions from the filmmakers. So we'll talk a bit more about the plot and a bit more about the songs that were removed in Discarded. But suffice to say, at this stage, the core plot is basically a Prince and the Pauper story set in the Incan Empire. So it's about the emperor who swaps places with a peasant. The emperor at this point is called Manco, and the peasant is still Pasha. So we'll talk about more details about the story later on. But they put together, you know, the entire story and storyboards and animatics, and they animate about 25% of it. And everything hinges on this first fateful screening of the work-in-progress film. And the documentary is called The Sweatbox, not because they're in an incredibly hot room like you and I are right now. <laughs> like, this, this podcast episode could also be called The Sweatbox. But The Sweatbox is the nickname going back till I think the days of Walt for the screening room because that's where you get sweaty, you get nervous about what the execs are going to say about your film. So they screened the film in work in progress for the executives. This is in 1998, they've been working on it for four years. There's lots of footage of this moment in the documentary, which is kind of the centrepiece of the movie, where it takes its title from. And there's lots of footage of the crew preparing for the screen and saying stuff like, well, you know, <laughs> they could say they hate the whole story and ask us to scrap the entire thing, but that'll never happen. Oh, and that's exactly what happened. No, don't tempt it. It's dead. It, they decide it doesn't work, and the pressure is now on to get a version of this film that does work released for summer 2000, two years. That's when it's got to come out because they have promo deals already in place with McDonald's, with Coke, with everybody. Right. So this is prime, like, commercial Disney. We have a tentpole, we have a date. If we scrap this, we're losing money on commercial deals. Isn't that where the magic happens, Sam? <laughs> the magic right. of creativity. Well, the magic did happen because... This movie did not come out for summer 2000. It came out in the winter. In, in order to fill that gap and, and meet those obligations, they rushed Dinosaur, as we mentioned last week. And So the magic did happen because we got that excellent film that didn't suffer at all from that process. <laughs> so it is, it's this knock-on effect. And 
a theme running through this era is there is some discontent and a little bit of chaos in the executive ranks. The heads of the Disney company and the Disney animation studio switch places quite a bit over the course of the wilderness years and you can see that in the films and in the wild directions they go in wait what so people are swapping jobs at the studio what is happening at the studio at this time what what is happening in the wider disney ecosystem for them to go from this film being a musical in the style of the 90s renaissance movies to something that feels distinctly different from that that we get in the end what is happening big picture wise at, at the studio So during the production of this film, Peter Schneider, who's effectively the executive who's in charge of Disney feature animation, and he's been nominally in charge of Disney feature animation since like the Jeffrey Katzenberg days. Katzenberg was head of the studio as a whole, and Peter Schneider was head of animation. He's now made president of the studio, so he's got Katzenberg's old job. His deputy, Thomas Schumacher, becomes head of animation. So these are the guys in the sweatbox. It's Thomas Schumacher and Peter Schneider. Those are the guys who cancelled this movie, who said, Kingdom of the Sun, we're not having it, we need to rework it. And then the other big thing that happens is that we have a new president of the company, effectively Michael Eisner's second-in-command, named Bob Iger, who obviously is going to become a big presence in the Disney story and over the course of the wilderness era will become the CEO of the Disney company, which he still, bar a brief bob swap a couple of years ago, (laughs) holds today. So Schneider and Schumacher, they want a drastic overhaul, even though 25% of this has been animated. The voice actors have recorded their lines. A lot of this is done. They get the writers together and they end up pitching six different outlines of the story. And the execs basically went for the version that was the furthest removed from what Alice had originally tried to develop. And this was the version pitched by Dindle, who up until this point was the co-director. This is when the film becomes a Buddy Rose comedy, the Prince and the Pauper thing is gone, and the abrasive Emperor Manco, formerly a supporting character, was the lead. Right? He was like second to Pasha. Now Pasha's the supporting character. Manko is the lead. They changed Manko's name to Kuzgo because Manko in Japanese means something extraordinarily profane. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. It, it refers to a certain part of the female anatomy in an extremely derogatory way. So they changed Manko to Kuzgo for that reason. And all of this. I imagine more the story change than the name change causes Roger Allers to leave the project. So Mark Dindle is the sole remaining director. This is his movie. Now the movie is called Kingdom in the Sun. It went from Kingdom of the Sun to Kingdom in the Sun. And it only became Emperor's New Groove near the end of production. Of course, with all of this change, Sting's songs are in the bin. But... They still want him involved. They still want his name in there. Sting is summoned back. They call Sting back up and ask him to write some more songs. And in the documentary, you can see him meeting with the filmmakers as they talk him through the new story and their ideas for new songs. And he's just absolutely hilariously checked out. He is not bothered (laughs) about this at all. Sting's feeling stung. Yeah, you move on, right? He wrote those songs years ago. He's got a new album that he wants to write, but I guess he's under contract at Disney. He has to write two more kingdom in the sun slash emperor's new groove song or they're gonna send him to the dinosaur song factory as punishment (laughs) (laughs) it's in his contract slaving away yeah so that 
is how we get to the Emperor's New Groove. Okay, it's a long and winding road. I love that they present six different options for the story, and they're like, let's go for the one where he turns into a llama. <laughs> That's the opposite of what Kingdom of the Sun would have been. Kingdom in the Sun, that is that is shockingly bad. That means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that could be anywhere. I think that's interesting, actually, because the original version, again, we'll talk about it a bit more later, is steeped in Incan mythology. Kingdom of the Sun sounds like it refers to a specific place. This was a place in a culture where they worshipped the sun like a lot of Mesoamerican cultures did. Kingdom in the sun, that could be London today. It could be anywhere. <laughs> it removes that specificity as that specificity gets removed from the story itself. And obviously Emperor's New Groove does away with it completely. Well, should we get into the film itself? Should we head to Peru? Should we head to the Incan Empire and buddy up with Cusco? and Pasha. <laughs> a dog in your local neighbourhood agrees the twilight bark has begun. That is our sign. <laughs> I've got to say, Sam, we discussed a lot in our dinosaur episode that we didn't particularly enjoy that film. It didn't feel like the sort of films we've been watching on this podcast. And it was a film kind of devoid of colour and energy and all the things you associate with a Walt Disney Animation Studios film. And it was such a joy, such a relief to be back in prime Disney territory with The Emperor's New Groove because this film begins and instantly it's like colour, energy, gags, fun, interesting designs of things. Everything looks visually appealing and interesting. If you didn't know there'd been crazy behind-the-scenes wranglings on this film, you'd just be like, this is classic Disney. This is Disney doing its thing. And that's exactly how I felt in a post-dinosaur world watching this film. It was a joy to be back, back on terra firma. Thank you. Thank you, Disney. And it's, it's interesting that you say back in familiar territory, because I think this film is playful in the way that it opens, because it makes you think very deliberately that you're in extremely familiar territory, I thought, because it opens with this very dramatic music and a type of multiplane shot, right? Panning through the forest where we find this very sad, wet llama, and that's kind of like the pathetic moment from the sublime to the ridiculous. Yeah. It sets up the sublime Disney style that we're used to. It could be a shot from Bambi, maybe the Jungle Book, but it's this bait and switch that we get on a few occasions throughout the film. It's not as direct as the opening of Shrek, of the opening of a certain other film that we'll be encountering during this era that I, I won't name because I don't think you've seen it. But it, it is kind of subtly placing us in a more Disney-esque place, much where this film started production and taking us immediately into a space where we're looking at this very silly character and hearing this directly fourth wall break in narration as well, things that we've not really had in Disney films. Yeah, the narration is a big thing, and we'll come back to that, but the two things, the two films that this instantly reminded me of that we have already encountered was It Feels Like Aladdin. It feels mm -hmm. like pure comedy adventure in the way that Aladdin was, which also had that framing of, like, we're bringing you into the story. We've got the market seller who's breaking the fourth wall, talking to the audience, sort of starting to narrate the story that real comedic tone comes through. The other thing is Hercules. This film yeah. reminded me loads of Hercules because, again, it is an all-out comedy. That is the primary genre at play here, that this film is played 
for laughs and it is playing on a zany register feels a bit mean to say because zany i think has negative connotations but it is playing in a wacky cartoonal space again we will get into that i love that about this film in a way that i struggled with that in hercules for some reason it just works so much better for me in the emperor's new groove but that whole bait and switch as you say of like let's go in in the serious weighty way that you'd expect a disney film to begin and then we're going to undercut it with some gags and with a big jazzy musical number it was so hercules this whole tom jones opening why is there a tom jones opening number in this movie where does that come from well, so this is a Sting song still. This is this is one of the songs that Sting wrote. So that they got him back in and he wrote this and he wrote My Funny Friend and Me, which is the closing. And I think you do see him in the documentary Journey to Las Vegas to recruit Tom Jones and record with Tom Jones for this. And it works because... I mean, the character, I think I've read people say that he looks like Tom Jones, and I don't think he really does. I I wouldn't look at that character and immediately say Tom Jones, but it's general, like, Vegas, medallion man, like maybe Elvis, entertainer kind of style that he's got going. But it's extremely contemporary. It's unmissably contemporary. Like, Tom Jones, he's got a big voice. I'm sure he could sing opera if he wanted to, but... We, I say contemporary, I'm talking like 1960s and 70s, obviously. <laughs> but he, he was back, right? He had some hits in the 90s. Sex Bomb, I think, probably came out before this. I was about to say, where does this sit in the timeline next to Sex Bomb? Which I can't believe that was such a big song of our childhoods. What was going on? Tom Jones, I struggle to sanction anyway. Few songs give me just generally the ick. Like, What's New Pussycat just makes me feel a bit sick. What's New Pussycat, I agree with. Tom Jones in general, I think he's cool. So this came out the year after Sex Bomb. I've actually had Sex Bomb stuck in my head a little bit these last two days, because I don't know if you've seen, a lot of people have tagged me on Twitter in, um, they've brought out some Shrek Crocs. Oh, okay, yeah, I have seen this. (laughs) And I've just, for some reason, I've had that in my head all day to the tune of Shrek Crocs, Shrek Crocs. You're my Shrek Crocs. Gonna wear you when I go down to the swamp, Shrek Crocs. (laughs) Shrek Crocs. You're my Shrek Rocks. You can wear them barefoot or you can wear them with some socks. <laughs> Get us down to the Dinosaur Song Factory. Stan, <laughs> we're cooking on gas Anyway, here. I think that the heat is starting to show in our delirium. So yes, this was the year after Sex Bomb. So Tom Jones actually was still quite contemporary. He was still yeah. in the charts. You can't knock him for that. He's had hits in probably every decade since he came out. So... I think great choice. It's Yeah, it feels very modern. It feels very now. It feels very at odds with what Disney have done before. I think this song wouldn't be completely out of place in Hercules or Aladdin, which have those more modern soundtracks, the, the kind of jazz of Aladdin and the Motown of Hercules. But what's crucial here is it's a big, typical Disney-style production number, but it's one that's been arranged by a character. This isn't naturally occurring. This isn't a moment, like a Howard Ashman-style moment, where the character's emotions have become too big for them to be expressed through words and have to be expressed through song. This is something Kuzco has arranged for himself and implicitly arranges for himself every single morning. It's the Disney musical number as a diegetic signifier of this guy's narcissism. Yeah. And to the extent that the the songwriter doesn't have a name, he is named as Theme Song Guy, because that's all he is to Cusco. Cusco doesn't care who this guy is or have any respect for this guy. He's, he's just like, you're the guy who does my theme tune. You are Theme Tune Guy. That's who he's credited as in the film. 
I just love you go into this film and you're like, this is called The Emperor's New Groove. And you get a great vibey title card. I love the title card from this film. I'm excited to put that on our Twitter, on our Instagram. Go and follow us on social media. We post lots of cool things, different things as well across our social channels. I'm excited to have the Emperor's New Groove title card adorning our social channels because it is a really cool title card. And you don't even have a second to question, but where is this groove? It hits you with the groove straight away. The groove is there in the opening, like, two minutes. We're straight in, and you're like, where's the Emperor's New Groove? Oh, right there it is. The groove has begun. And no one knows that more than Rudy, the little old man who gets thrown out the window, (laughs) who is my early contender for Disney versus Legend in this movie. Okay. I th- so two reasons. One, it's the original voice of Piglet, John Fiedler. Oh, okay. Yeah. He, so Rudy, who isn't named in this film, but he is very prominent in Kronk's New Groove. <laughs> very prominent. He, <laughs> and does some weird stuff, which we'll get to. That was John Fiedler's last performance in Kronk's New Groove, so I think that's lovely. He's got a great voice. He was in 12 Angry Men. He's a great guy. Uh, he was one of the Angry Men. <laughs> the least angry, I would say, of the Angry Men in 12 Angry Men. And Rudy, the old man who gets thrown out the window, he has just such a funny speech. He's the guy who brings up really, the, the the concept of the Emperor's Groove. Kuzco throws him out, he says, you're messing up my groove, and then I think it's Pasha comes by him and he's like, oh, don't ruin the Emperor's Groove! And he's like, what do you mean by his groove? And he's like, his groove! The rhythm in which he lives his life! <laughs> which I think is a really, really funny line. And then later on, at the end, when Kuzco's reformed, he goes, he's apologising to him and he says, oh, don't worry, it's not the first time I've been tossed out a window, and it won't be the last! <laughs> This guy is just committed to a life of chaos. You're you're really winning me round on this, because I had a couple of possible contenders. I'll happy to hear them. Which, I'm going to say straight up, I I think we're going with Rudy. You've won me round on Rudy. I don't think my suggestions quite come up to scratch. But the ones that I had, yet again, I want to suggest a chameleon. I just love chameleons. There's a purple (laughs) chameleon in the jungle who, again, just has a cool vibe, and I'm like, yeah... That's my personal chameleon legend of the film. There's so many in Disney. Who knew? <laughs> it's a new category. Which, I mean, that's going to come to fruition when we get to Tangled. So. Absolutely. But my other thought was, again, like seconds after the chameleon, where I was like, ooh, 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 look at that. There was the little bug caught in the spider web going, help me, help me. Loved that bug. Which is a reference to the original The Fly. Right, to the 1950s fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which the, the fly gets caught in, yeah. I recognise that as a reference because, of course, they did it in The Simpsons. In The with Simpsons. Bart <laughs> there we go. Oh, actually, similar moment. Again, it's Rudy, but the chimp and the bug. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> gag. Where the camera like pulls away from the castle and then just keeps pulling and pulling and pulling till you get to just a chimp eating a bug with no purpose. <laughs> and then Cusco's narration is like, it holds it for like a beat just long enough for it to be funny. And Cusco's like, what's with the chimp and the bug? Can we get back to me, please? Again, very Aladdin, I think, the way that it plays yeah. with the frame of, of what you're seeing, that the frame itself feels elastic. It's the opening of Aladdin where it's closer, closer, not yes. too close. Yes, that is a spot-on comparison. Anyway, yes, Rudy, let's officially induct him. First Disney versity legend in, in quite a while. 
Congratulations, Rudy. You're in. And as you enter the halls of the Disneyversity Legends, we give you a skateboard. That will come in handy later. So, <laughs> we've established the groove. We've established what the tone of the film is. Let's talk about Cusco, because Cusco is a really interesting character. I think all the characters in this are great and really pop and have a lot going on. I cannot believe we had found the great David Spade film. I've never been a fan, really, of David Spade. Sure, he's hopefully a nice guy, I guess. I've never really been into, like, David Spade's comedy. I think he's probably a bigger deal in the US than he is here. Pops up in lots of slightly lesser-known sitcoms and slightly not great. He's almost like sub-Adam Sandler comedies of the mid-2000s. He is great in this as Cusco, and we'll talk about this across all the characters, Sam, because I think it applies to them all. But one of the things I was so struck by with this film is that the acting, in both senses of the word, I think is off the chain in this movie. I think the vocal performances are excellent, but I think the character animation acting is so... Subtle feels the wrong word because it's so broad to get that comedy home, but it's well honed. It is perfect in timing and in just little wry gestures and facial expressions. It'll come up, especially when we talk about Kronk, and believe me, we are going to talk about Kronk. But I think you feel that in Cusco too. You just instantly know who this guy is. You want to be in on the groove. The groove is so good. You want to be part of the groove. But you also see how smarmy, how slimy, how self-involved this guy is. But you also see there's something a bit underneath that. And the way they animate him as a human. And keep certain characteristics as a llama. And keep that through line. I just think this is a really well-animated film. I think it just gets the characters across so, so well. Yeah, and really interesting that you bring out the movement of the characters, because this is a film which has been compared in a lot of ways to the work of Chuck Jones, who, if you don't know Chuck Jones, is probably the most prominent and influential of the Looney Tunes directors, did a lot of the, what basically regarded as like the greatest animated short films of all time, really, especially from like the cartoon genre, things like What's Opera Doc and One Froggy Evening and Duck and Muck. Uh, if you're a Looney Tunes head, you know those names. If not, you've probably seen them if you Google them. Obviously, there's some very overt Chuck Jonesisms in this, like the style of slapstick comedy and the fourth wall breaking, which we'll talk more about. But the acting, the animated acting is really reminiscent of Chuck Jones as well. These very quick, bold movements where they go from extreme pause to extreme pause without much of a step in between, that's extremely Chuck Jones. I think of that especially in the groove, in the way that Cusco moves to the music. It's all these kind of snappy moves where his arms are outstretched, but then half of him's like scrunched in on himself and then he'll snap into like an equal but opposite position. Yeah, and it's quicker and cheaper to animate, really, than than doing detailed movements, but it also means you've got really tight control of comedic timing as well. If you just snap from pause to pause, you can make sure that the jokes land really, really hard. But what is also very reminiscent of Chuck Jones is the simple but like really expressive facial designs and it's those like subtle movements you know sometimes very extreme but sometimes those facial movements are very subtle and sly and uh, I think Yzma especially is a, a really good example of that 
her face is extremely reminiscent of Chuck Jones's version of the Grinch. There's a, a famous shot from that film where the Grinch does this like really slow, wrinkled smile, and that sensibility of these like subtle characterful movements comes through in I think Yzma most prominently if we're talking about the face but I think in in Cusco as well absolutely and of course as a character very reminiscent of Chuck Jones's take on Daffy Duck he's the Daffy Duck of the Disney stable one of my favorite well definitely my favorite cartoon character of all time wow yeah I think that probably came up when we were doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit your Daffy Duck love and because yeah Cusco is an interesting character in the sense that He's horrible. He's the worst for most of this film. And obviously they bring you in at a place where you're like, there is going to come a point in the film where he is sad and alone in the jungle. It's also interesting that the narration is coming from just before that point in the film, really. We're getting the narration from the point of view of the old Cusco, the horrible Cusco, who is trying to present himself as the victim in this story. He is, like, narrating from a different point in time than the film is actually taking place. And you basically need to sympathise with this guy enough while he's being horrible. And I think the way that they get around that is just have him be really funny and kind of magnetic. That's why I think the David Spade performance is great, because he does bring the laughs. I think this character could so easily be off-putting. And there's something that even when he's being the worst you kind of like him or you enjoy spending time with him, spending time in that world with him. And I think that's kind of miraculously the case both with him as a human and as a llama. You could be there watching the human version going like, okay, I'm bored, get to the llama, get to the llama. You don't have to wait very long for the llama. He becomes llamafied relatively early in the film. But the qualities that make him entertaining to watch, to listen to, to spend time with, I think are equally present when he's a human and when he's a llama. And of course, very reminiscent in that way, the way of being human and llama and a douchebag in both forms of the beast from Beauty and the Beast, right? It's, it's right. a similar journey that you know Pinocchio as well but I think that the most obvious comparison is Beast because these are characters who were you can imagine pre-Beast Beast being very Cusco-esque this young narcissistic prince who treats this old woman cruelly and the old woman turns him into into an animal of some kind and then like the Beast he has to learn something to regain human form literally in the case of the Beast and of course Pinocchio they have to reach this point of character development before they can become humans whereas Cusco he does learn something, but he also just drinks the right portion at the right time. But unlike Beast, we spend a lot of time with Kuzco as a human beforehand, and we get to see him at his absolute worst. You know, the Beast is, is, is not a great guy when we first meet him, but he's being humbled by this transformation. We don't get to see him in full douchebag mode. But with Kuzco, we do, so they have to make that appealing, and they have to make that funny. And... For that reason, I think he's the only one of these characters, I've pointed out many times, Pinocchio and the Beast being the most obvious examples, that these characters who, where their whole goal is transforming into their true form at the end of the film, we don't see their true form again in spin-off media. We never spend any time with human beasts, we never spend any time with human Pinocchio. 
but Kuzco, whose human form is developed as a character and who we do get to know and, and like as a character, if not as a person, that's the version that we see. Like the Emperor's new school and Kronk's new groove, these spin-offs that we'll talk about, they didn't feel the need to make him a llama just because that's the form that we're seeing him in for most of the movie. He is human Kuzco and also he doesn't seem to have learned much because he has to <laughs> be funny in the way that the original version of Kuzco was. So he's, he's barely a better character in The Emperor's New School than he is in this film. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction of how we are happy to see him as human Kuzco in other media and other formats. The thing I liked as well that I just think is impressive design-wise is the stuff that is consistent across human Cusco and Llama Cusco, even just the way his hairline and like the top half of his head is the same, but they give him the sort of Llama jaw. And then the way that they're able to play with the expressivity of him having a long neck and these long limbs and this like shaggy fur, be able to use that, like the way his fur moves is almost the same way that his cloak would have moved as a human when he's dancing around they use it in this way to just create interesting and fun and energetic movement. I think as a kid, I didn't really watch this much as a kid. My one memory of this as a kid, which looking back on it is probably a bit horrible, is I didn't see this at the cinema, didn't have this on VHS, had none of these movies on VHS in the wilderness years. But I think it was a year eight music class at school where the room is surrounded by those keyboards, those Yamaha keyboards that go, DJ, oh, yeah. DJ, uh, uh, uh. famously used in klaxons. Uh, is it Golden Scans, that song, where it used all the it's sound of Atlantis it? to Interzone. Atlantis to Interzone, which, very fitting for <laughs> next week. You can tell how old we were in 2006. <laughs> so we're in, what, 2002, 2003 or something at this point in time, on a year eight music class, and we're just being unruly. The whole class, no one has listened to the teacher. The teacher can't be asked. I think it's nearly summer. And it got to the point where we all just started chanting, video, video, video. <laughs> and he caved. He gave in. And he just put on the Emperor's New Groove for like 20 minutes, which I feel a bit bad about now. I think as a teacher, that would just be horrible. And he was just in a place of like, I'm not dealing with these kids anymore. Fine, I'll put on a video. If this keeps you quiet for 20 minutes, which it did. My one memory of this film as a kid is that moment where Lama Kuzco does his little celebratory uh-huh, when he does his little sort of slightly moonwalky move. Yeah. Why is that such a big moment from this film? I think it was in the trailer as well. Like that did. I'd almost forgotten about it, but then on this rewatch, I, I think probably every time I rewatch it, I'm like, oh yeah, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. I think it was one of those things where they're like, this makes it look funny and cool. We'll put it in all the trailers. Uh, see also, boom, baby. That got a lot of play. <laughs> yeah. I see why. Thank God we didn't know that as year eights in music class because we all just would have been shouting, boom, baby, until he put the Emperor's New Groove back on. I mean, before we get on to Yzma and Kronk, who can throw around the phrase MVPs, and I think it feels valid for them, I, I do quickly want to talk about Pasha, because I think Pasha, again, is a great character, and is the character who is, like, the one straight man role in this. Everybody else gets to play these big, oversized, wacky cartoon creations, and you really have to feel something for Pasha, and you totally do. 
And there was a strange occurrence when Pasha first turned up when I was watching this now. I have to say, I didn't remember a huge amount of when we watched it a couple of years ago, mainly because we watched it back to back with Kronk's New Groove. And I think you were just looking forward to Kronk's New Groove the whole time. This was like the prerequisite to finally watching Kronk's New Groove. That was the aim of the day. If you had asked me going into this film, name any actor who is in this movie. I could not have given you a name. Definitely would have, have given you David Spade. In fact, the one I would have given you is Eartha Kitt voicing Yzma. That is all I could have given you for that. For some reason, as soon as Pasha turned up on screen, before he said a single word, I was like, that's John Goodman. <laughs> I don't know if it's like the shape of his face. He looks John Goodman. You can just, the feeling that this character exudes in his just mere presence. I'm like, that's John Goodman. If it's not voiced by John Goodman, it's a John Goodman type. Oh no, that is John Goodman. I just instinctively felt that that was him. I think I said this about Nathan Lane, maybe? I said it about somebody, I think it was Nathan Lane on The Lion King. But John Goodman is another one of those people where when I was a kid, like that's kind of how I figured out who actors were. The idea that, this, oh, it's the same guy in, in multiple things. And um, yeah, John Goodman was another one of those. I think probably because he was on Muppets Tonight, the 90s version of the Muppets, which is how I encountered a lot of celebrities and just the idea of a celebrity for the first time. Um, so yeah, I think I was pretty excited when I saw this and it was John Goodman from one of my favourite episodes of Muppets Tonight. But he does a really good job here. You know, similar to but distinct from Sully, for example. Um, but you know, John Goodman's a guy who did a lot of voice roles and Pasha is like an underrated one of the... Right? It's not... You would go to Sully, I think, if you were like, what's the best John Goodman voice performance? Yeah. Maybe Robot Santa in Futurama. <laughs> but Pasha is like, it's understated, especially compared to... David Spade, Eartha Kitt, Patrick Warburton, and those characters, but he holds the movie together, he's the character that you like, He's it's an overused phrase, but he is the heart and soul of the film. You need to like this character because you need to want Kuzco to be like this character and, and, and to like this character himself. And what I also really like is Pasha's family. I like that they gave him a family. I think you could easily have done this without giving him a family. This movie is a four-hander. There are only four important characters in this movie. Everyone else is peripheral and you can take out. But having him have that family life and that quite chaotic family life, like his kids are really funny. His kids are all over the place and they are like funny in quite unique, interesting and very believable ways. But it's like his home life is chaos, so he instinctively understands how to put up with someone like Kuzco and even someone like Yzma and Kronk because he's surrounded by chaos anywhere. I'm going to say, yes, it's a four-hander, but because it's this film, we're going to have to call it a four-hoofer. <laughs> we're making that clear now. Yeah, I think Pasha having Chicha and the kids, there's a version of that where it's like, oh, you feel sorry for him because he has a family. That's like just the instant thing you can do to just like, oh, he's got things that he cares about. He's a nice guy. He's got a family. But they make those characters fun and funny and capable. Like when they trap Yzma in the house later in the film, they have stuff to do. They're not just like there to be accessories to Pasha. At the same time, you do feel the heart of that relationship. You do feel the warmth between him and Chicha and you want good things for them. And you see that he is just a good guy trying to provide, as is she, for their kids. So it's just a a quick but well-drawn dynamic. And I think it says so much about Pasha that considering he is the serious-ish character in this movie, you don't feel bored when you're watching him. 
you don't get a Pasha scene and go like, okay, how long is this going to take until we're back with Cusco or we're back with Kronk? You enjoy those moments of the film just as much as any other part. I think that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think that that first scene that he has with his family, which is the only, there's only really one kind of Pasha scene without any Cusco in it. And that is very welcome because it's this oasis of warmth in this otherwise, up to that point, quite cynical and silly movie. And also, I have to point out, I believe Chicha, first pregnant woman in a Disney movie. Right. I don't know if they ever had a hard and fast rule against that, but uh, that, that is the case. You never see Lady of Lady and the Tramp, her human owners are having a baby, but you never see or hear anything about it. It's just like, there's a baby coming? Yeah. Oh, you know what? I've said that now because I read it, but now that you've said that, do you see her pregnant in Lady and the Tramp? And I'm also saying woman because you probably see Pedita pregnant, not like visibly pregnant, but just chronologically you must see Pedita pregnant in 101 Dalmatians. Lady and the Tramp. While you're looking into that, I'm just going to say that scene as well with Pasha and Chicha and the kids is a really well done emotional moment. And then... The film interrupts it, or specifically Cusco interrupts it. That's one of the big fourth wall breaking moments where Cusco crashes in and he's like, wait, 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 wait. Remember, this film is about me. This is yeah. my story. In that moment, I felt many things at once. I was like, on the one hand, I'm like, you are undercutting the sentimental moment. Like, is this film having so much fun that it's almost afraid to be sentimental? Is it just deeply uncool? in the 2000s that even Disney feels like it can't be sentimental overtly? Is that just something that is going out the window? That said, it does feel like a character moment too, because you are being presented this story through pre-enlightened Cusco, who is all about himself, and it does feel true to the character that he would be like, wait, 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 this is all about me. This isn't Pasha's story. Why are we watching a scene that's not about me? So it felt true to the characters, but it did make me wonder, oh, I wonder if this is just a symptom or something we're going to see. Because these days, Disney, I think, is back in a very sentimental space. I think it's very emotionally intuitive and emotionally intelligent in a lot of the recent Walt Disney Animation Studios films. But it struck me that this film couldn't have the one sentimental scene without feeling like it had to put a joke in there and undercut it a little bit. Right, and it'd be easy to say that that's kind of the Shrek effect that lingers over the 2000s. That's why we don't get much of this again. And especially in movies from studios other than Disney, with the obvious exception of Pixar, that would spring up these new CGI studios like Blue Sky and Sony's animation division that would follow Shrek. They were generally not making very sentimental films at all. They carry on the cynical attitude that Shrek popularised. But of course, this came out before Shrek. That's why we said we have to record this before we do our Shrek live episode because I feel like we need to have these conversations. Shrek gets a lot of credit for doing things that Emperor's New Groove already did and that kind of more cynical excision of sentimentality is one of them. Now, I think Shrek does have a heart to it. We'll talk about that in a couple of days, Ben. And I think Shrek is the more influential film. I don't think those other movies all took that tone on because of The Emperor's New Groove. It was obviously Shrek, which was this humongous hit. But um, the fact that this movie already did it shows that it's both probably a symptom of the era, a symptom of the times, and also a symptom of Disney themselves as much as anybody else being kind of done with the Renaissance mushiness. 
So did that give you a minute, Sam, to Google Padita and find out what's happening? Okay, Padita, not visibly pregnant. I'm not a human. Darling and Lady and the Tramp, not visibly pregnant, which maybe even shows like that was kind of maybe a Disney choice. Maybe Walt had an issue with showing a visibly pregnant woman because it makes people think about the actual physical nature of germination and birth. I have no idea. (laughs) But um, she is pregnant. You see her during a time where she must be pregnant, but she's not visibly pregnant. I don't even have anything intelligent to say about the fact that Chicha is the first pregnant woman in a Disney movie. I'm sure other people have said intelligent things about that. I can't think of any right now. I'm just (laughs) fixated on it for no reason. Let's move on. (laughs) Well... Speaking of having nothing intelligent to say, we've waited long enough. It is time to address the Kronk in the room and the Yzma in the room. You can't really discuss these two without talking about them together. Kronk and Yzma. Man, I was cracking up all the way through this film as I was watching it tonight. Kronking up. I was cracking up. I was cronking up. I was honking up. I was just having the best time. And so many of those laughs. Like, obviously... My journey to this film several years ago was through Kronk, through Kronk's New Groove, the inherent hilarity of the name Kronk. I have somewhere in this room where we're recording the Kronk Funko Pop that you got for me after we watched Kronk's New Groove together. But I think I'd forgotten truly how funny Kronk is, how funny that character is, how funny the performance is, the amount of gags that he gets the just general tone of that character that is so delightful. I, man, I'm a huge Kronk head. So it's interesting, actually, because Kronk is the only character in this movie who wasn't the only main character who was not part of Kingdom of the Sun in any way, shape, or form. He's a complete Emperor's New Groove original. But he also is probably the character who feels like you could drop him into an earlier Disney Renaissance movie most easily. Like, he is not miles away from Iago or your Pain and Panic, your classic, like, Renaissance-era henchman, uh, LeFou. The only thing that does set Kronk apart from those earlier henchmen and sidekicks is that he is a genuinely kind-hearted guy. Next to Pasha, maybe even more so than Pasha, he is just such a warm dude. He has his heart in the right place all the way through this movie, but his head is so drastically in the wrong place (laughs) constantly at any given time that it has no impact. He just really wants to do well by Yzma for no apparent reason. It's insinuated at one point that they are lovers, which no one wants to think about, but Ben's (laughs) given me a weird look. There's a scene in the... Maybe it was just my reading on it, but it's when they're having the dinner together and Kronk goes out to prepare the poison, the poison for Kuzco, the poison specifically for poison and Kuzco or whatever it is. While he's out, Kuzco and Yzma have this awkward conversation like, oh, he seems nice, bit young for you and that kind of thing, which suggests to me that at least Kuzco is trying to make it look like they are together in a relationship. I don't know if that's really the case, but you know... It's that Ken Barbie thing. Like, we now have the closest thing that's been in a movie to this very weird relationship that they have (laughs) is probably now Ryan Gosling's Ken and Margot Robbie's Barbie. Just this absolute blind devotion for the sake of devotion. Like, you have nothing else to do with your life. Your entire existence is to serve this person, and you're going to do it in a very wrong-headed, himbo-ish way. Yeah, and these two together, like, Kronk is so funny and he is 
the absolute definition of a himbo, completely bulked up and doesn't have a single thought in his head. And Yzma then being, I think, a really great Disney villain. She obviously is playing on a much more comedic register, but you see the reference points there of, I think, the main ones being Cruella, Maleficent, and Ursula as being not just purple, not just having a very distinctive silhouette, a very distinctive outline, but she's got the almost like fashionista element of Cruella. Amazing outfits, incredible fits. The lab court with the goggles, oh my oh, word. Oh man, Yzma and Kronk entering the lab and the shot just holds on them in their lab outfits for a couple of seconds because I think they know this image goes harder than anything else <laughs> that Disney is going to do for a while. They let that image stand. I love that. It is it is such a vibe, those two together in those costumes. I think, I don't want to make any promises to the listeners, I think you and me could pull that off. I think yeah. if we ever need a, a Disney-themed cosplay, <laughs> yes! I think we could be Kronk and Yzma. Oh, we can carry around little pink potions <laughs> yeah. with labels on them. We'll make sure they're labelled correctly. I'll write that down. So, with Yzma, you feel, anyway, all these classic villains coming through, I do think you feel a lot of Cruella, a lot of Maleficent in just the pure evil of her, and Ursula as well. You get the sense that she is a bit of an outsider, and she's clamouring for power. There's, like, a deliciousness to her. There is, like, a deverishness, which I think especially comes through because of Eartha Kitt's vocal performance. But all of those things swirl together, and then adding a lot of comedy into that and having her playing off with a just complete airhead is a delightful, delightful combination. All of the stuff of, like, pull the lever, Kronk. Wrong lever! Like that. <laughs> Why do we even have that lever? <laughs> it is amazing. And, like, Kronk's ongoing gag of just... He just loves making food and he's obsessed with his spinach puffs. Get Kronk on the bear... Add him into the kitchen from the bear. He reminded me of... Have you seen the bear? I have not seen the bear. I've seen, like, that one screenshot of the main dude from the bear who looks like a young, sexy Gene Wilder over and over again. (laughs) But I have never seen the bear. I've never seen a single second of it. You've got to watch that show. It is so outstanding. It is exquisite in so many ways. But you get to learn all the people in the kitchen. And one of them is a lovely guy. He's a pastry chef. And especially in the first season... They're trying to stop this restaurant from falling apart. Everything is so chaotic. At the same time, the pastry chef just has his own personal mission. He just wants to make the perfect donut. And he, you see and you feel his devotion and his passion for making this little donut. And you know that he's going to perfect it at a point where nobody needs to hear about the donut right now. Everybody's just trying to stop the restaurant from falling apart. But he cares so deeply about getting these donuts right. And I was like, that is giving me crunk with his spinach puffs. Yzma's got her whole scheme. They're trying to kill off Kuzco, but he's like, my, my spinach puffs, they're burning. Oh, I l- just love that weird character detail. And when they're in the restaurant later in the film and he gets sort of sucked into being the chef at the restaurant and he just willingly takes that role on. I feel like that's how he came to be with Yzma in the first place. He was just in a certain place at a certain time and then suddenly he was like, I'm doing this now. Gladly. <laughs> she asked him to do something and he just did it and then she asked him to do something else and he just did that. Oh man. Such an iconic pairing. And their whole thing as well after the poisoning goes wrong, dessert and coffee then finish the job. I respect that so much. That is my philosophy too. It's such a great 
pitch perfect comedic double act. I don't know if they were in the booth because often when you hear people in animation with that much chemistry together, you find out later on that they were in the recording booth, which is relatively rare at the same time. And this feels like that. It, it might not be true. In fact, I've seen footage of Eartha Kit recording on her own certain lines, so that maybe not. But it's a miracle if they weren't because they have so much chemistry together. They play off each other so well. Patrick Warburton, excellent, doing his thing that he does a lot. I think only for that reason, Eartha Kit is like my voice performance MVP of this movie. Because I've just, I mean, I've listened to her, I love her music. I've seen her in the Batman 66 show. I think this is my only other like major Eartha Kit acting performance. I need to look into that a bit more. But she is so good. She is so off the wall. There's obviously the really famous legendary deliveries like pull the lever, wrong lever, and all of that. For me, the one that stood out was um, there's just it's the madcap where she says, "Who does that ungrateful little worm think he is?" <laughs> It's the, the elongation of worm for no particular reason. And then also, of course, the bit where she's describing how they're going to kill him. And she's saying, well, it's like, I'll turn him into a bug and I'll put the bug in a box and I'll mill the box to myself. And then I'll smash it with a hammer. <laughs> so good. While we're on that sequence, though, the stuff in the lab and that little flight of fancy of how she's going to kill Cusco, the animation in that sequence is beautiful as well. I love the block colors the bright pink set against just pure black backgrounds when they're in the lab and you get a lot of these pinky purple colors and these very inca inspired designs feels like its own little world within the film very much leaning into the sort of mesoamerican cultures that they're drawing from at the same time it almost gave me a little bit of a mary blair feeling and i don't know if that's because her choice of colours are so striking and so strong and so playful, but I really felt that in that moment. I love the stuff in the lab, not just because they're wearing those outfits. Yeah, all of the vocal delivery stuff here is so delicious. I, I agree with you on Eartha Kit, but there are so many cronk lines that just crack me up as well. The one that really hit me this time was when Cusco and Pasha are having to do a distraction to get out of the restaurant and uh, start the happy birthday song for Yzma. And Kronk's like, really sincere, wait, it's your birthday? I was like, that <laughs> slayed me. It was so, so funny. Patrick Warburton, who voices Kronk, I don't know if I know him from any other stuff, but the character as a whole, the tone of the character, the vocal performance, and the way he's drawn, I wonder if this is part of the reason I like it so much. To me, it's Bruce Campbell. It's Bruce Campbell in mm. The Evil Dead. It is like hunkiness and dopiness and incredible comic timing and a lot of slapstick. It is weirdly... I know I bring up The Evil Dead a lot, but Evil Dead 2... Army of Darkness era, Bruce Campbell. That is what I get, I think, from Kronk, weirdly, in a Disney context. Yeah, I think Patrick Warburton is kind of like Bruce Campbell with the parody dial turned up like one extra notch, because Bruce Campbell is, is already like playing parody in, in most of those Evil Dead movies. If you turn the dial a little bit further, you get Patrick Warburton. He plays two types of characters. He plays characters who are really overtly stupid, like Kronk, and he plays characters who think they're big and bald but are stupid and they think they are. So like he plays the tick, he was the original tick, and he plays Buzz Lightyear in the cartoon, 
where Buzz Lightyear is like a figure of fun in, in a different way than the Tim Allen Buzz Lightyear is. I love him as the sheriff in Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, the really, really good, heavily serialised Scooby-Doo cartoon from the early 2010s. He <laughs> <laughs> was very Cronk-esque, like a slightly nastier Cronk. And he's in Family Guy and he's in Seinfeld. Sorry, I just had to name some Patrick Warburton stuff because he's, he's done a lot. Yeah, absolute legend. His delivery oh. again of... I just forgot the best one. He's in B-Movie. He's the best character in B-Movie. In in B-Movie, he is the boyfriend of the human woman who falls in love with Jerry Seinfeld the bee. And he's the only character in the movie who thinks it's weird that this woman is obsessed with this bee. And everyone else acts like it's normal and he's freaking out all the time. Yeah, really stellar work in B-Movie. Sorry. <laughs> All I was going to say was, again, his delivery of he's going to be dead before dessert, which is a real shame because it's going to be delicious. I felt for him. I felt for Kronk with his delicious desserts. Let him make the spinach puffs, damn it, like the guy and the bear with his donuts. So something that we teed up earlier in the discussion was a big sort of Looney Tunes element to the comedy here to a cartoonishness, a willing cartoonishness that really runs through this whole film in a really fun, kind of anarchic way. And one of the most prominent parts of that for me was, again, in that restaurant scene when Cusco, in llama form, loosely dresses up as a woman llama by putting on some lipstick, putting a little headscarf on, and suddenly Llama Cusco is a llama lady just out for a lovely lunch. And it was complete Bugs Bunny puts lipstick on and has a little hairdo and suddenly Bugs Bunny is cosplaying as a woman in a cartoonish way. Like that felt like a really different tone for a Disney film. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the thing about Bugs Bunny is, I mean, he is like a very kind of gender queer character, as we would describe it now, and there's been some interesting stuff written on that from academics. And it's this idea that Bugs Bunny is always the most powerful character in the room at any point in time and he has this utter mastery over the entire like cartoon text including gender and it's like a manifestation of his power that he's able to like effectively change gender at will it's been kind of read in the past as like quite a positive version of a queer character and i think this is not quite that because this is like kuzco's being reduced to doing this and and that's why it's funny it's not like a joke at the expense of this guy for having to dress up as a woman. It's more of a joke at the expense of everyone else for not recognising that this is a llama. And I stumbled upon, when I was doing research for this, an extremely dumb article on, like, comicbook.com or whatever, just churning out listicles. And it was like, 10 things that don't make sense about the Emperor's New Groove. And the answer to every single one was, because it's funny. It's a cartoon. So it was like, how come nobody can tell... Cusco as a llama when he's dressed as a woman, guys. What? I hope someone got fired for that blunder. And it's like, <laughs> man, it's because it's funny. It's because it's a joke. Of course, you or I, we're big boys. We're big smarties. <laughs> and we would have been able to see, if, if I saw a llama in a wig and lipstick, I'd be like, llama, instantly. You're not going to get one past me. <laughs> but in this case, it's a comedy cartoon, so everyone's an idiot. That is an example of where this exists in that cartoonal space, that everyone's so dumb that they will believe something like that. And this is, this character is meant to be passable as a human woman. It's very funny. But there's so much stuff in this that feels very Looney Tunes. Like, the sound effects in this, I think especially when Kuzco and Pasha are having their fight when they're dangling down from the bridge, there's lots of, like, honks and bells and, like, when they're, like, spinning around, all these Looney Tunes sound effects... 
There's the amazing map montage where Kronk and Yzma's arrows on the map are chasing Cusco and Pasha's arrows on the map, and you get moments where Yzma's carriage like grows wings and gets struck by lightning, <laughs> which is so Wily e. Coyote. There's like a moment where Yzma and Kronk notice the purple arrows that they're leaving everywhere on the floor, and they're like, huh? And then when they finally get there, the beat. Cusco and Pasha to the palace, they're like, how, how did you beat us? And they're like, show you the map. And it's like, oh, well, by all accounts, it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, it really is open about its own cartoonishness in a way that's really fun as well. When the bridge breaks and Cusco and Pasha fall down, they do a classic double take. They hover in the air for a minute, take a beat before they fall down again. Super Looney Tunesy. Wile Coyote stuff. Was that an Acme bridge? It probably was. And it's not just the Looney Tunes quality, it's as we've mentioned as well, bits of poking fun at Disney tropes. There's a moment where a squirrel tries to befriend Cusco by giving him a little nut. And your classic Disney protagonist, your classic especially Disney princess would be like, thank you squirrel, I am friend to all the animals, let's have a song together, maybe come and clean my house if you've got a minute. That doesn't happen with Cusco, he like flicks it back in the squirrel's face. That is surely a pointed reference to how Disney heroes have been portrayed in the past. Yeah, there's this character, this cute squirrel who turns out to be quite vindictive later on. He shops Kuzco to the jackals and all of that. Um, so yeah, apparently the cute Disney sidekicks actually very reminiscent of Screwy Squirrel. Did I get that right? Screwy, Nailed it. Scru- Scru- screwy Squirrel. Screwy the, uh, is a really hard s- word. Screwy Squirrel. The Tex Avery cartoon, which starts off in like a Bambi cutie style and then turns into something much more angry and abrasive so another kind of not a Looney Tunes film but from the same era we get Yzma's transformation which feels like a direct reference to Maleficent's transformation when she disappears in this enormous plume of purple smoke and we think she's going to turn into a dragon or something dangerous and it's a little kitty cat and then also she takes an enormous fall which normally would be the death of any Disney villain but she bounces back up off a trampoline Homer Simpson style yeah exactly And I did think the most pointed parody of Disney was actually probably the idea of Cusco-topia, that the whole starting point of the film is that Cusco wants to demolish Pasha's village to build this resort slash water park. And that feels almost like, in its Disneyland-ness, a critique of Disney imperialism. Like, this is coming in the wake of the initial disaster, the cultural Chernobyl that was Euro Disney. And, you know, we've just come back from a wonderful vacation in the completely different Disneyland Paris, which is absolutely not a cultural Chernobyl, and which is nothing to do with Euro Disney at all. But this was a conversation that was now happening. There was also controversy around... I think we might have talked about it in the Pocahontas episode, controversy around Disney trying to build an American history-themed park on, like, indigenous land as well. So there's maybe just an actual pointed critique of Disney's business practices, imperialistic business practices there as well. And that kind of comes to a head. I'm getting slightly ahead of ourselves. But the ending of this movie, where Cusco is having fun on, like, an all-natural waterfall in... Pasha's village, that wasn't the original ending. The original ending was Cusco builds the water park on a different hill. And right. This really pissed off Sting. <laughs> Not Sting. 
Sting was fuming. He wrote them a very angry letter, which he reads out in full in the Sweatbox documentary. Wow. He was upset at this ending because he saw this as like indicative of an ideological disconnect between himself and between materialist Disney. Like this guy's supposed to have grown as a character, but he still builds the water park just somewhere else. And Sting is an activist. He's well known as an activist. And one thing that he's really into is the protection of rainforests and the protection of their indigenous inhabitants. And he saw this as going against that principle. That's why Disney took the note, they replaced the water slide with a waterfall. <laughs> That's so funny. The power of Sting. Look, they'd pissed him off enough, Sam, through the whole process of this. They had to give him something at the end. Uh, not least a song. A quite boring song. You can see why they jettisoned the songs with what this film became. Because his, like, we need to be friends and we it's are better so when we are together. Whatever that song was, was... That was an old groove. This is the That's... new groove. Get with the new groove, guys. <laughs> That's the Academy Award nominated My Funny Friend and Me, nah. which like is, the way this movie ends with like a cronk beat with a bit of cronk <laughs> comedy and then straight into this boring ballad. That's almost hilarious in the contrast. And Sting, again, in the documentary, Sting's like, yeah, I wrote this song, but like, it sounds pretty stupid <laughs> coming at this point in the movie. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to enjoy at the end of this film. Not only all of the transformations in a very sword-in-the-stone sense of Cusco and Yzma transforming into Cusco's becoming a turtle and a bird and a whale. Also felt a little bit Nimona, if you've seen Nimona this year, and if you've not, go and watch Nimona, it's so good. Because it's red and Nimona's animals are red. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that makes sense. Another possible Disneyversity legend would have been the uh, octopus with an axe. Loved the octopus with an axe. But surely, Sam, it has to be a gag that at the end of this movie, Yzma, Eartha Kitt, becomes a Catwoman. <laughs> That's got to be intentional. Yeah, yes, yes, quite possibly a Catwoman, as she was famously Catwoman, and her name is Kit. She is a kitty cat. It does make a lot of sense. She does a great job doing the cat voice. And as I've said before, control over transformation, that most uniquely animated form of magic, is usually in Disney movies reserved for the most powerful characters in the film, people like the genie or Maleficent, or even Merlin and Mim, who have this chaotic comic shape-shifting duel, which is very similar to this, but they are always in total control of what they do. They choose what to turn into. And here, nobody controls transformations. Like, Yzma doesn't even turn Cusco into a llama deliberately. No one has that power. No one has that control, as emphasised by the fact that she turns into a cat rather than something threatening. They're all just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and none of them are dumber than my boy, Kronk. Top of the list. Okay, then that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look into anything strange that didn't make the finished film. And Sam, as we've already teed up in this tumultuous production, there must have been a lot of stuff that was jettisoned from Empire in the Sun? Of the Sun? Kingdom of the Sun. Kingdom of the Sun. I'm thinking of Steven Spielberg, as I am at most times in my life. From that to The Emperor's New Groove, a lot of stuff must have been cut. A whole movie. Yes, yeah, so, exactly. So like I said, the original story is a version of The Prince and the Pauper set in Incan Peru with Emperor Manco being replaced by his doppelganger, a llama farmer, that rhymes, huh? Nice. A llama farmer, right to sting, called Pasha. 
who would turn out to be a more compassionate ruler. So this premise is very simple, but the setup is ridiculously complex, and you can see why they wanted to cut back on this. So, first of all, it's against the backdrop of this ancient conflict between shadow and sun gods, and we have what feels like a very like modern Disney move. They do this in so many of their movies now, a prologue setting up the mythology of this world and the Incan deities of the light and the darkness. So in amongst all of this, Yzma wants to sacrifice Manco, the emperor, to resurrect the shadow god, Supir, okay? In order to restore her youth and beauty, because she blames the fact that she is old and wrinkled on the sun. And she thinks that if she gets rid of the sun, that she'll turn young again. She has a whole song about this, which Eartha Kit recorded, and it is on the official Emperor's New Groove soundtrack. You can listen to that. Oh, wow. It is pretty good. It's a pretty good song, and obviously it's a great Eartha Kit performance. So this is happening. That's her motive. Banish the sun, grow younger, and it sacrifice Manco to resurrect Supir to do that. Meanwhile, Manco needs to find a bride in order to remain emperor, as you do. Someone always needs to do something in order to remain the monarch or the princess or whatever in these films. And there's a very brief nod to that at the start of this, where Cusco is kind of presented with a group of women and quite misogynistically dismisses them all. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Pasha is trying to save his favourite llama, Snowball, from being sacrificed in the palace. So he's in the palace and Manko's in the palace and they meet each other and they decide to switch places because they're both bored of their respective lives. And then on top of all that, Yzma still turns Manko into a llama. So, so <laughs> you, you said earlier, what, they pitched all these different ideas and they chose the one where she turns him into a llama? No, it's still turning into a llama, but against <laughs> the backdrop of the Prince and the Pauper story, wow. which itself is against the backdrop of sun versus shadow gods in Incan mythology. That's a weird combination. That's a weird mix of elements. It's too much. Tonally jarring, and it was narratively jarring. It's just too many layers of stuff. Pasha was voiced in this by Owen Wilson, by the way, who recorded all of his lines. So long before Lightning McQueen catch-owed his first catch-out. Which, as you'll hear at some point, that was such a huge part of our Disneyland Paris experience. We haven't got the time to go into that now, but expect a lot of Lightning McQueen chat from our Disneyland episode. So he recorded all of his lines as Pasha, a very different version of Pasha, you know, younger Cusco, like with a doppelganger for Cusco. Harvey Feierstein, who we last encountered in Mulan, was Yzma's sidekick in this, a little stone guy called Huaca. And actually, Huaca is the centerpiece of Yzma's dinner table in the Emperor's New Groove, so there's still an image of him in this. Um, so yeah, there was, I think, six Sting songs cut from this, and there's two that survive on the official Emperor's New Groove soundtrack. There's Snuff Out the Light, Yzma's song, and there's an animatic for this in the sweatbox as well. It looks like a really cool sequence where she's surrounded by really stylized like monsters and ghosts swirling around. And there's another song which is like... Look, it's got a lot to live up to coming after every little egg. But in terms of <laughs> extremely catchy, strange, bad songs that repeat the same word over and over again, you could do a lot worse than Walk the Llama Llama. <laughs> How many times does it say llama? A hundred times. Many, many times. It goes a little bit like this. Walk the llama llama, llama llama, take in the panorama, llama llama. Oh, I like it. I'm into it. 
anything to get every little egg out of my head, please. It's worth listening to because on the soundtrack, presumably not in the original intended film, but on the soundtrack, it's performed by another alumni of Cars, Rascal Flatts, (gasps) who performs the... You know what? I've just realised I don't know if Rascal Flatts is a man or a... (laughs) Or a group. What is Rascal Flats? It's a band. Okay. Rascal Flats is a frequency. <laughs> it's a mood. It's a feeling. It's the force. Rascal Flats, who perform the cover of Life is a Highway in the movie Cars, perform a cover of Walk the Llama Llama on the soundtrack to The Emperor's New Groove, which would have been a much more appropriate song to have in the credits. It fits better tonally. So there you go. That's everything I know about Kingdom of Slash In The Sun. The thing that stands out there is that that version sounds much more complex, but it feels like it was trying to wrangle a little bit more of we are telling a story of the Incas that is culturally specific to Peru. There is an element with The Emperor's New Groove that that story is just planted onto that location, to that context. It doesn't really tell you anything about Peru or about the Incas. And I do think something that we haven't mentioned yet with The Emperor's New Groove is that it is, you know, it is a fun, light comedy. It's not trying to really do anything serious, but it is using that history and that iconography in a film with a primarily white cast that is not doing anything to kind of highlight that culture in even the ways that the problematic films from the Disney Renaissance often were trying to get something from the places that they were representing on screen. I don't know if there's a huge amount to say about that necessarily, but it feels like something Disney wouldn't do now. I think they would lean much more into elements of mythology or cultural specificity, and especially in the casting as well, to ensure a kind of better sense of representation than you get here, as great as all of these voice performances are. It feels like it's set in Peru because Disney were in the middle of, and they kind of still are in this place of like cultural tourism. Every movie is set in a different place, but yeah, it's so far removed from the original story that it could pretty much be anywhere. Lama's obviously a native to Peru, but other than that, it could have been anywhere. And in terms of the cast, it's worth noting that in a somewhat unusual move, in markets in the United States with a large Latin American population, they released a version of this with a Spanish audio track into cinemas. So if you were Spanish speaking, you could go and watch this movie in Spanish, which is it's kind of a weird because obviously the Incas didn't speak Spanish, the Spanish colonised South America, so it's still got that colonialist bent to it, but it, it, it was something for that audience of Hispanic Americans, Latin Americans, who you know had a bit more of a connection to the at least the country in which this is set, if not the actual culture that it's portraying. Uh, it, that didn't do very well. Right. <laughs> People still preferred the English dub, so read into that what you will. Let's get into whether this film was a hit then. First up, critics. What did critics say at the time? Were they up on this? Yeah, generally, pretty up on it, actually. So uh, Looney Tunes was always mentioned, and this stylistic departure was always a factor. So Roger Ebert compared it favourably to the Looney Tunes and said that while the movie doesn't have the technical polish of a film like Tarzan, it's a reminder that the classic cartoon look is a beloved style of its own. And 
Variety also praised the Looney Tunes influences and highlighted the troubled production, saying that it will be remembered as the film that established a new attitude in the halls of Disney's animation unit, which is interesting because obviously it kind of did in the sense that it's a departure from what had gone before. That's the whole point of this era that we're covering at the minute on this show. But also, this is the wilderness years. Every film is totally different. There's a couple more films that feel like they come from a tonally similar place to this, but it's not like it was all groove all the time from now on. <laughs> Atlantis is a very different film, you know? Right. So what about the box office? Did audiences respond to this? I think you mentioned in Dinosaur, which that film made a lot of money at the box office. It also just cost a huge amount of money because of the studio that they effectively made to create that film it sounds like dinosaur outperformed emperor's new groove which hurts me to feel that yeah dinosaur outperformed all the films that we're going to encounter in in this era pretty much so emperor's new groove made 89 million domestic and 169 million worldwide so that is better than rescuers down under and fantasia 2000 which were big flops as we know but worse than anything else since the 1980s so this was like way 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 below even the lowest gross and film of like the renaissance proper it had good word of mouth and you can tell that because it made more money in its third weekend than in its first weekend and it was a holiday release so maybe there were other factors but i think that says that people were telling people to come and see this movie i would imagine an, an older audience you would get in like more teenagers maybe over time as they realize this isn't just a kiddie disney film but it, yeah, it didn't, it didn't do very well overall. It's the beginning of a real slump. It's a shame because I'm going to say it. I am somewhere between a four and a four and a half out of five right. on this movie. I had so much fun watching this. It feels to me like one of Disney's funniest comedies. It is so short and sharp and just gets in and gets loads of great gags, incredible performances really strong vibrant animation and gets out before you get tired of anything it's so fun it's such a blast and like i don't know four and a half maybe feels a bit ridiculous for something that is so inherently just a bit of fun but it succeeds at that so spectacularly out of such chaos behind the scenes it's pretty remarkable i would absolutely watch this again when i just need a laugh well, that's interesting to me because it's, it's, I'm not saying, well, I'm obviously not saying you're wrong, but <laughs> I, I, it's interesting to me because you did not famously, infamously did not like Hercules. Yeah. And your point was that it's quite funny, but at the expense of any heart that we expect in those Renaissance era Disney movies. So I'm assuming either or here, the emotion worked for you more than it did in Hercules or it's just so much funnier that it didn't matter I think I found it a lot funnier because the comedy didn't really land much for me in Hercules I did think it had the heart because I did feel that for the characters especially the Pasha stuff I think is really effective at that and I think the characters are really well drawn I think it is emotionally effective in what it's trying to do and I also think it's not trying to tell an epic story. I think that's the dissonance I felt with Hercules, of it's trying to, in that Renaissance era, tell a big, grand, mythological Greek gods story, and then just undercutting everything with gags. Whereas this, there is nothing to undercut. The undercutting of itself is the substance. And I kind of love that about it. It had a really just anything-goes tone. 
So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go for it. Four and a half out of five for me for this. I I've had so much fun watching this more than a lot of the films that we've watched for this podcast. Yeah, it it really does work, doesn't it? It, it hits that balance. Like it's not it's not gonna make you cry, but you do feel for these characters, which is a really impressive thing because like Disney from the start overtly, deliberately avoided using cartoonal tropes in his, in, you know, Walt did this very deliberately in his features because they wanted to create believable worlds, characters and scenarios that the audience can invest in. Like, Snow White is not a cartoon. As I've said before many times, if it's my, my famous catchphrase, if Snow White gets shot in the face, you believe she will die. If Daffy Duck gets shot in the face, he's fine. And the extension of that is you care about Snow White, not just about her mortality, but about her feelings as well, and the feelings of the characters around her. Ember's New Groove is the first Disney film to really embrace, like, the Looney Tunes hypothesis of the cartoon world, intrinsically. Like, there's bits of it in Aladdin, there's bits of it in Hercules, but here we have this comic climate. Like, everything here feels like it doesn't matter, and that's the point, because if it mattered, it wouldn't be funny when the old man gets thrown out the window. But we can laugh at these characters while also having an emotional connection to them, that's hard to do. Like, Looney Tunes cartoons are seven minutes long. What's Opera Doc has a dramatic arc, because of course it does, it's opera, but generally they're not trying to make you feel anything apart from comedy, so it is really impressive how Disney manages to have it both ways here. What about your star rating? Where are you landing Ah, on this? It's a four, I think, although I can't explain why, so maybe it's a four and a half. Yes. But it's good it is funny it is funnier than hercules i can say that happily it is is definitely funnier than hercules Uh, i don't have the like childhood connection to it that i do with hercules but the script here is extremely tight i haven't mentioned we don't often mention the screenwriters here this was written by david reynolds who would later be oscar nominated for finding nemo and is currently writing the chris pratt garfield movie starring samuel l jackson as chris pratt's dad <laughs> you are going to be obsessed with this uh, i can feel how much you already are <laughs> sorry, sorry to be clear by the way garfield's dad chris pratt's dad is not a character in the chris pratt garfield movie samuel l. jackson is playing garfield's dad <laughs> <laughs> right then now it's time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. So, are we starting with Kronk's new groove, or are we building up to Kronk? I mean, it came chronologically before The Emperor's New Sorry, School. Kronkologically, I think... <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, excellent, Ben. Uh, the heat and the hour has not dulled your wit one jot. It is so hot, <laughs> it is literally midnight. <laughs> so, let's start actually with The Emperor's New School. I will say it is very difficult to tell which of these is meant to come chronologically Thank you. first in the canon, because in The Emperor's New School, it's obviously set after New Groove, because Kuzco is friends with Pasha, but... Kronk is still working for Rizma, so who knows. So, Cusco has to graduate high school without failing a single class, or he loses the throne. That's right, it's Homer goes to college, but with (laughs) Cusco. Yzma, as a new plot, disguises herself as the principal to install Kronk in Cusco's class and sabotage him. So, Kronk 
is pitted against Cusco and all of these classes by Yzma to try and make him fail so he can't be the Emperor. And it's very reliant on repeating jokes and plot points from the movie. I watched a few episodes, I think I watched three, and in all of them they did pull the lever again. And... <laughs> Look, it's a good gag, just, <laughs> just do the gag again. Solid gag. And... But a different thing happens, like an anvil falls on her head or whatever. And they do the roller coaster of the lab every time because that kills time, doesn't it? And every episode basically involves a different portion that turns Cusco into a different animal. It's quite poor, even by the standards of... It's basically the same premise as the Hercules cartoon, for example. It's nowhere near as good as the Hercules cartoon. Drinking potions to turn into different animals is also the premise of the Emperor's New Groove PlayStation 1 game, a 3D platformer, God's chosen genre, where (laughs) you play as Cusco as a llama, but you can also turn into a frog or a turtle or a rabbit and they all have different abilities. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. They're doing something with it. There is also a PC game called Emperor's New Groove Groove Center. Is it a dance game? Is there like a dance mat for this? No, no, not at all. Much the opposite, to be honest. If I feel like the Groove Center is like down the road from the Dinosaur Song Factory. <laughs> so it's like a bunch of mini games. They did these for um, The Lion King and Hunchback and a few others. It's like mini games, simple games on the computer. So there's one where you throw portions at Yzma's guards. There is a really boring, slow-looking minigame where you play as Pasha planting vegetables and then waiting for them to grow, which is maybe one for, like, the Stardew Valley fans or, like, Farmville or something like that. That looks interminable. And there's one where you play as Cusco swinging from the vine under the bridge, but there's, like, alligators trying to get you, and you've got to spit large planks of wood from Cusco's mouth into the mouths of the alligators to trap their jaws. So it's so bizarre. Cusco does a little intro to it where he's like, I'm swinging on the vine and like press the space bar to spit a plank of wood out my mouth. And I like rewind it. (laughs) It's like, wait, wait, spit? He spits the wood and he does. Llamas spit, don't they? That's a thing that llamas do. Yeah, but their spit does not transubstantiate into (laughs) wood. Whatever, maybe that's a side effect of the llama portion. Anyway, that's it. There's not a great deal of Emperor's New Groove stuff, nothing in the parks, but there is the monolithic Kronk's New Groove. Yes, Kronk's New Groove, which I haven't rewatched for this podcast, mainly because, sad to say, it is rubbish. (laughs) It is bad. Is it? Well... Because I did rewatch it. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, I'm intrigued to know your thoughts, because this is three episodes of a discarded TV show shoved together. Obviously, it is Kronk-centric. There are so many things that I remember and enjoy from this. Not only is Disneyversity legend Rudy back in a big way in this, like, one of the episodes, effectively, is to do with Rudy being a skateboarder now, and it's like, the joke is, he's real old, and he's skateboarding, man. Uh, it's one of my least favourite jokes is old person breakdancing or old person skateboarding or whatever. I hate that. I, I Even when it's Rudy. I enjoyed it. I, I like I like skate stuff. I enjoyed the early noughtiesness of just that being a part of this film. The main thing I remember, though, is an actually pretty good part of this film, which is it might even be the framing narrative that now... Kronk has taken over the restaurant that he inadvertently ended up working in, in the Emperor's New Groove, and he is trying to stop the kitchen from spiralling out of control. It's the bear. It's basically the bear, except it's not 
his brother's approval that he's looking for. He wants a phrase that Sam and I, as just part of our life, part of our general lexicon with each other, the thing that Kronk wants is not just the approval of his father, it is specifically a big thumbs up from Pappy. <laughs> That's his dream. He, he wants to create the perfect meal because his dad's going to come and eat at the restaurant and he wants the big thumbs up from Pappy. He wants that approval. The big thumbs up from Pappy is obviously core. But in fact, what because I did rewatch this and yes, it is not good. It's not <laughs> as good as I remembered it being because I remembered having such a good time with it. Yeah. I was like, oh, that this is probably fun. It's okay. It's one of the better Disney sequels, I think, still, but it's um, it's not good. But what he wants is, his, his dad is actually, he disapproves of the fact that he's a chef. He doesn't want him to cook at all. He wants him to get a house on a hill and a wife. Those are the two things. And then the other two diversions, there's one about him trying to get the house on a hill and one about him trying to get a wife, sort of, and those are the two segments. So, in the first story, Yzma tricks him into selling a fake youth potion to Rudy and the other old folks so that they sell him their house to buy more potion. But Kronk feels guilty and he gives it back. And this features an absolutely disgusting joke (laughs) in which Rudy... I love Rudy and he is kind of done dirty in this. He's a big part of it, but there's a bit where Rudy scuttles into Kronk's house, his new house, naked... Because he's addicted to Yzma's portion. And he's talking like Gollum. He comes in, he's like he's like naked, and he's like freaking about oh. like Gollum. He's, he's a TDLF, basically. He goes no. from Disney Versity Legend to TDLF. I don't remember that at all. No. That's what addiction does to you. He's like, oh, precious portion and all of that. And it's, it's sick, to be frank. <laughs> and what else is sick is that when he's introducing the second story, he's like, oh, let me tell you the story about how I nearly met a wife or whatever. And he pulls down a screen, like, oh, this story, you know, classic new groove, fourth wall, break and wear. You're going to watch the story play out on this screen. And it brings up the title Stag Reel. And then Kronk's like, whoa, no, 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 not that one. That's the wrong tape or whatever. And a Stag Reel, if you don't know, is like old-timey pornography. What? <laughs> like old-timey homemade sex tapes, effectively. So Kronk has its Stag Reel that he he almost accidentally showed us, and and who knows what that contains. Oh my goodness. So two really upsetting jokes that kind of almost ruin (laughs) two of the best characters from The Emperor's New Groove. But the second story, it transpires about him falling in love with the leader of a rival group of chipmunk scouts, and the feud between their tribes drives them apart. I remember that being tedious. I remember the Cub Scouts bit. It's just like, why is there 20 minutes of this film that's him being a leader of the Scouts? Which obviously they tee up at the end of Emperor's New Groove. But I did not. I didn't need 20 minutes of that. It would have been better if they just interwoven these stories. So that like the love story with the Scouts is happening in parallel to the stuff with the old folks and Yzma. It's like you've got Yzma all the way through. You've got Rudy all the way through. You've got the love story all the way through. You're not just sat watching one of these fairly insubstantial stories for 20 minutes. So then ultimately what happens is Pappy finally comes to visit and Kronk convinces Pasha to loan him his house and wife to impress his dad, to impress Pappy. So due to a misunderstanding, he's like pretending Cheech is his wife and the kids are his kids. And then all of Kronk's other friends 
get dragged up and pretend to be his wife. So Rudy's pretending to be his wife. And I think some of the other old people are dressed as like adult babies, oh, pretending to be his babies. Nope. And like Kuzco comes in, who's barely in this, by the way. Kuzco comes in dressed as a woman and, and Pasha's dressed as a woman. And then when his dad finally sees that his, his friends care for him enough to do this, he says, I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care if you've got a wife or a house on a hill. You're getting the big thumbs up from Pappy. <laughs> oh, man. Well, even if the film is not the best, it still holds a special place in my heart, in our friendship. It gets the big thumbs up from Benny and Sammy. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for our next seminar as we uncover the secrets of a forgotten civilization in 2001's Atlantis, the Lost Empire. We're going to be back in Trousdale and Wise territory. I love it. I can't wait. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or even just a star rating, whatever app you're listening on, if you have time to write us a review, it means so much to us and it helps us get in the charts. And it's just lovely to hear feedback on the show. If you can do that, We'll hook you up with an entire platter of Kronk's spinach puffs. Piping fresh, straight from the oven. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Boom, baby! Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh.